Well, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, then you already know that we are planning to spend almost this entire year actively seeking to enter into what we're calling the story of our king. And you know as well that the, that the king, whose story that we're seeking to actively enter into, is none other than Jesus. And you know as well that we're seeking to actively enter into the story of our king, who is Jesus, by studying together individually in our personal worship, corporately on Sunday mornings, and then in our community groups, which plug in all over the city in all different times and days of the week, the books of First and Second Samuel. And we've chosen these books very intentionally. We've chosen them because they record for us a transition that happened in the hearts and in the minds and in the lives of God's people in the Old Testament that needs to now happen in my heart, my mind, my life, and, if I can be so presumptuous, yours. And it's the transition from what is essentially self-government to the government of a king. Let me just put it in terms relating to me. It's the transition from the reign and rule of Tom over Tom to the reign and rule of Jesus over Tom. And it's the reign and rule of you over you to the reign and rule of Jesus over you. And one of the things that we've discovered and talked about as we've developed this the last couple of weeks is, hey, listen, Jesus did not just come to save us from our sin, guys. He came as well to save us from ourselves. From my reign and rule over my life and your reign and rule over your life and the reign and rule of everybody else over their lives and the consequences thereof. Jesus is king. And one of the things that we learned last week, really it's where we left off, the driving point of the whole week last week was this simple statement. When you have a king, then you serve, you ready? The king. You do what the king says. Okay, but that presupposes something, and it's the something that we're going to talk about today. It presupposes that the king that you serve actually speaks. I mean, how are you going to do what he says if he is mute? But here's what I want you to see today. He's not mute. You come to a king who speaks in real space, in real time, with real words to real people. Real people like Samuel, whose story we'll look at today, but real people like me and like you, whose stories are yet being written. We pick up our study today in 1 Samuel 3, beginning in verse 1, where we read this. It says, now the boy, notice he's just a boy still, the boy Samuel, who if you've missed it thus far, is the son of this amazing, precious, incredible woman named Hannah, who made a vow to the Lord, oh Lord, if you'll give me this boy, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And that's in fact what God did, and that's in fact what she did, and practically speaking, here's how she did it. She weaned her one and only precious son, and then at about the age of three, four, five years old, so try to enter into the emotion of that, she took him to the town of Shiloh, where she did not live, and she brought him there because that's where the temple of the Lord was in those days, and she entrusted him to the care of this man named Eli, who was the high priest of Israel. And so if you've missed the story thus far, you're just joining us today and you don't know about Samuel, you're probably thinking, great choice of a person to raise your son. I mean, who better than the high priest, the spiritual leader of the nation? Okay, but if you're on board with us, if you've been tracking, terrible choice. Because by now you know that Eli is a spiritually blind, gluttonous fool who has himself already raised two famously wicked, blasphemous sons. So now you're going to drop your little four-year-old 
off with him? I'm thinking she probably got a little pushback from the community on that idea. Surely God didn't want you to do that. But she wasn't entrusting her son to Eli in the end. She was entrusting her son to her king, the king who speaks. And so we read, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord, or let me put that differently, the word of the king who speaks was rare in those days, for there was no frequent vision. And in those days, that's the way God primarily at least spoke to His people, through dreams and through visions. So that kind of leaves us with the question of, well, then why did God stop His communications? And the answer that I think this story suggests, but to see the answer, you've got to look at the story in terms of light and darkness. But the answer that I think the story suggests is because because Eli, the high priest, was spiritually dark. And thus the temple that he resided over, dark. And thus the nation was dark. But I think in order to see that, you need to understand that one of the ways that the Bible refers to God's Word in the Bible is it describes it as a light. The most famous example of this is Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp. What does a lamp do? You turn it on and it gives you? Okay, three of you. That was awesome. (laughs) Hopefully everyone else heard that. You turn it on and it gives you? That was great. Much better. You turn it on and it gives you light and then you can see where you're going. And it's altogether directional. Your word is a lamp to my feet. What do I do with my feet? I walk, I move, I go places. Your word directs me. It's a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my path. The Bible comes with to us with two paths. They may have various names, but let me name them for you. The path of life, the path of death. It lights up the path of life for us. It leads us, it guides us, it directs us, it tells us where our king wants us to go and what our king wants us to do. The Word of God is frequently referred to in the Bible as a light. So now let's read this in terms of light and darkness and understand that what's happening physically in this story is a reflection of what is true also spiritually in this story. So again, we read, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli and the word of the king who speaks and by which he then provides light and thus sight and direction and guidance to his people was rare in those days for there was no free frequent vision given to the people of God because, that's my interpretation, at that time of spiritual darkness, due to the absence of the light of God's Word, Eli, the high priest, the spiritual leader of the nation, was what? What is the physical description of him? His condition is one of blindness. He's physically blind, but what's happening physically is true also spiritually. That's the idea. He is a man who physically and spiritually lives in darkness. We read that Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, so that he lived in darkness, was also then lying down in his own place, which is, by the way, a place of darkness. Why? It's his bedroom, and the story takes place in the middle of the night. The man is clothed and enveloped in darkness, physically, and spiritually. And then we read that the lamp, which provides light of God, 
which illumined the outer court, if you will, the outer compartment of the temple, it says had not yet gone out, but the point is that it's about to. It's flickering. It's barely holding on. Light is about to go out in the temple, and then we read, and Samuel. Samuel is the one, and we're going to see it, that God is going to reintroduce, and you're going to watch the image of light. He's going to reintroduce the light of His Word first to Eli. Then He's going to reintroduce light of His Word, if you will, also physically and spiritually into this temple and thus then out into the land as well. It says, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was, not meaning he was sleeping in the Holy of Holies, but meaning he had a bedroom like Eli did, like his two wicked sons no doubt did, somewhere in the temple. And the temple is where the ark of God was. And then the Lord, don't miss it, called in real space, in real time, with real words to this real boy. He called Samuel and said, Samuel. And Samuel, who heard the voice of the Lord, but didn't yet recognize it as the Lord's voice, said, here I am. And then hearing nothing in response, well, then he got up out of bed. And he ran to Eli and he said, here I am, for you called me. I mean, it didn't sound anything like you, but good grief, what's the alternative? I mean, the light of God is practically out around here. So it must have been you. But Eli said, I did not call you. Go, lie down again. And so Samuel went and lay down and the Lord called again in real space, real time, with real words. He said, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But Eli said, I I did not call you, don't miss this, my son. Eli's like a father to this boy. They're tight. I did not call you, my son. Go and lie down again. And then we read the explanation for what's happening here with Samuel. It says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him, which I think just means that this is a first for Samuel. This is the first time that he has actively heard the voice of the Lord, and since it's a first, he has not yet come to learn to recognize it. Did you hear the way I explained that? He did not learn yet the Lord's voice. He had not learned to recognize it. There's something here, I think, about the Lord's voice that's very instructive. And that is that we need to not only have ears to hear it, but we need to learn what it sounds like. We need to learn to recognize it. I thought Matt's illustration at the beginning of the service here was great with the two flocks of sheep and the two different shepherds, and they're both converging at the same intersection, and his friends watching it freaking out for these guys, thinking, good grief, you're about to lose a third of your flock. You know, one of you is going to walk away happy. And they just sort of mingled together and then just kept going because each shepherd kept kind of saying his little call and all the sheep knew his voice. Jesus gathers up all of these different analogies that everybody in the first century understood and you and I haven't played with sheep, but that's why that illustration is helpful. And the point is that Jesus comes to us not just as a king servant, but with a different metaphor as well. He says, look, I'm the good shepherd. You guys are my sheep. Let me tell you something about my sheep. My sheep know my voice. And he doesn't say some of us. Some of my sheep know my voice. You know what? Occasionally, one of my sheep will be totally tuned in. My sheep know my voice. 
Now, what is the value of that? They follow the shepherd. They serve the king. They hear his voice when he comes to them and says, Hey, in your sin, you are in jeopardy. Eternally so. That's the bad news, but here's the good news. My arms are wide open to you. And by my life, and by my suffering, and by my death, and by my burial, and by my resurrection, I have purchased your forgiveness. I have purchased your eternal inheritance. You are mine, as we sang, and I am yours. But he didn't just come to save us from our sin. No, no, no. He came to save us from ourselves. And he didn't just purchase our forgiveness from sin. He purchased us, which is so much of what it comes, what it means to understand that you're a servant of the king. And you learn his voice. You come to recognize it. And like those sheep at that intersection, you follow the voice of your Savior King. Guys, we have a King who speaks in real space, in real time, with real words. And so having spoken twice to Samuel now, we then read this in verse 8. It says, And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli, and he said, Here I am, for you called me. And then even the blind Eli perceived that the Lord was the one who was calling the boy, but notice that Eli himself did not hear the voice, neither did either of his two sons. I mean, nobody else is running around in the temple going, Hey, you know, this is like the third time you've called me, and it must be you. My sheep know my voice. It says something about Eli, and it says something about Samuel. But Eli at least discerns, okay, then it must be God. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, and it's good advice, he says, go lie down, and if he calls you again, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so Samuel went and laid down in his place, and the Lord came and stood. He stood, I think, near to Samuel is the point. He drew near to him calling, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And this time Samuel said, speak for your servant. Here's, guys, when you have a king, you serve the king. You do what he says. But it presupposes that he's going to speak. And it presupposes as well that we will not only hear, but listen, and not just with our ears, but with our lives. Oh, great king, I've heard what you've said. You know what? I'm going to think about it and I'll get back with you. I will take that under advisement. I'll get the counsel of a few other people, and then I'll decide what I'm going to do. I've heard what you've said. Part of it I like. That's the part I'm going all in on. Hopefully that'll be enough, and you'll be appeased, and forget the rest, and find somebody else to do. Speak, Lord, for your servant. Your servant hears. He doesn't talk to us so that we can take it under advisement, think about it, and get back with him. Bounce it off a few other people. You know, the Lord said this. What do you think I should do? You know, he speaks to us because he is our king, and he's telling us what to do and where to go. And he speaks here to Samuel. And if you did your personal worship this week and you studied through this passage, you know that he gives to Samuel so that Samuel can then give to Eli a really blistering message, frankly, of judgment and doom for Eli, for Eli's sons, and for all of their posterity. Not a very popular message, not a very comfortable mission for this boy. 
It would be difficult for a fully grown man to to deliver this message. Samuel lives in the temple. Eli is, A, the high priest of Israel, fully grown, and B, like his dad. Eli has these two wicked sons, famous, you might have heard of them. What are they going to think of that message? Oh, and incidentally, how is it going to disrupt sort of the politics of this temple that Samuel is just this, you know, he's like a boy running around in this linen ephod, so he looks like a priest, but he's not a priest. How is it going to disrupt the whole sort of power structure of the temple when it becomes known outside the doors of the temple that God speaks again in Israel, and it's not through Eli, and it's not through his sons, it's through this boy. And that's what happens. I mean, the more you think about it, the more difficult this message gets. So we read in verse 15 that after receiving this difficult message, Samuel lay, and I think the idea here is wide awake until morning. And incidentally, what happens every morning? And if you saw it this morning, it was particularly glorious. Every morning the sun rises. And what does the sun do? It brings light. Light and darkness. Notice what Samuel does. He brings light into the temple. It says, then Samuel opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. And I would have been too, by the way. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. You hear the relationship. And he said, yeah. Here I am. And Eli said, what was it that God told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. And so Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. To which I would add, is what God always does. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the sovereign King. He does always what seems good to Him. And then we read that Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. It simply means that every time that God came to Samuel and said, here's what's going to happen next, God made sure that that's what happened next. None of his prophecies failed and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, from the very north to the very south is the idea, knew that Eli, no, knew that Eli's, no, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. Through him is the idea, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the light of the word of the king. So when you have a king, you serve the king. You do what he says. And you have a king that speaks. Real space, real time, real words to real people like Samuel, like you, and like me. The only question left, I think, for us is, okay, well, Tom, you know, how does he speak to me? Because I'm pretty sure that at least generally speaking, it's not going to be by appearing in my living room and trying to call me out of my bed in the middle of the night. That's probably right. It's unlikely that will occur. So how does he speak to us today? 
Well, first of all, God speaks to us today through His Word. Again, your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It shows me where to go. It tells me what to do. It is the primary way that God speaks to us today, and it is the primary vehicle, incidentally, also, by which we come to understand and to recognize His voice. And through His Word, He speaks to us objectively, meaning He comes to us with thou shalts and thou shalt nots. Thou shalt, if you will, be a radically truthful person. I don't have to say to myself when I'm tempted to lie or to, you know, manipulate the truth, hey, what do you think my king would have me to do in this instance? It's settled. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Got it. He takes a whole thing, a whole ton of things off the table with all of his thou shalts and thou shalt nots. But that's not the only way he speaks. He speaks subjectively through his word too. And here's what I mean by that. If you're doing your personal worship, then you know that this year, for example, what we're calling you to do is not just read the Bible, but to meditate on it, to think about it, to interact with it in a way that follows the pattern of what we do here on Sunday mornings when we gather together corporately. We come together, I hope, individually first, and we remember God. What is this text saying to me about God, of who He is, of what kind of God is He like? I'm writing things down. I'm jotting things down. I'm interacting with that. And then in the light of that, I take an appraisal of myself, and what's the next thing I do? I'm honest with God about myself. Yeah, i got to write some stuff down there too. The light exposes some things that, you know, the darkness has hid. Then I have to be honest with God about And yet in my trauma, he comes rushing to my aid with the blood of Jesus. That's the gospel. And what's the next thing that we do in our personal worship? We rest in his grace. We find our assurance in who we are in him, in all that he has done for us. And then what do I do as I'm working through this passage day by day throughout the course of the week leading up to Sunday? I receive his instruction. What is God telling me to do here? Because he tells me to do things. He brings people to my mind, thoughts and ideas. He impresses certain things make jump off on the page for me. And I realize, ah, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's the voice of the Lord. Last thing, do what he says. And then we come together on Sunday and do the same thing. We plug into our community groups and talk about how we can prayerfully support each other to do those kinds of things. God speaks to us objectively through His Word. He speaks to us subjectively through His Word. And I'll give you another way that He speaks to us through His Word. When we go to His Word and we store it up in our hearts, that's what we're told is wisdom. Store up God's Word in your heart. Here's how it works day to day, moment to moment. If I'm tuned into Him... If I'm living for Him and I have something I have to do or a decision I have to make or an attitude that needs to be confronted, I find that the Spirit just brings a verse to my mind. And I know in that moment that I've heard His voice. That's more than just reading the Bible. And that challenges you, I think, in terms of, okay, why do you read the Bible? I want to tell you, if you're reading the Bible just because you know you're supposed to read the Bible, I mean, that's like paying taxes, man. You just do it because you have to. Good citizens pay taxes, good Christians read the Bible, therefore I read the Bible. Wrong answer. 
Some of us, and this will be mind-blowing to some of the rest of you, read the Bible simply because we find it enjoyable and incredibly interesting. Now, if you don't read the Bible much, you don't know how interesting it is. You can spend the rest of your life marveling over its various fascinations, really. But if that's the only reason you're reading it, or even the primary one, then it's like gardening, man. It's just a hobby. It's not right. If you're only reading the Bible every once in a while and here and there to gain some practical wisdom, then you're not reading it for the right reason either. I mean, the Bible does contain wisdom for living. I think we all sort of intuitively understand that wisdom for living is a helpful thing. We would all like to live wisely because that's personally beneficial to us. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Who's serving who there? It's not a resource tool. That like turns it into your accountant. You know, I've got this accounting question. I need to call my accountant, my doctor. I've got this problem with my foot and I... He's not your accountant. He's not your doctor. He's not your financial advisor. He's your king who calls you into a relationship with him and whose voice he reveals primarily through his word. Lastly, it means that reading the Bible is not something you do primarily for inspiration or comfort. Is it inspirational? Yes. Can it be comforting? Yes. It can also be incredibly disconcerting. It really can. Be honest with God about yourself. That can be a painful moment. But then there's the rest in His grace. Remember that. Because that's a joy-producing moment. It is not a self-help book. It is not cosmic Tony Robbins. It's not. We come to God's Word because it is the primary place where God shows us where He wants us to go and what He wants us to do. He is our King and His Spirit takes His Word and teaches us to know His voice. Which means also, by the way, that if you're trying to figure out where your king wants you to go or what your king wants you to do, the number one question, first question you've got to ask, it's the first question by 10 miles, is what does God's Word say? Second question, like if you don't have an answer, is what does my heart say? And let me explain this. The second way that God speaks to us today is through the desires of our heart. The psalmist comes to us and he gives us this psalm, Psalm 37, verse 4, but don't miss the first phrase. It's all right there. He says, delight yourself in the Lord. Stop for a second. Make God your primary passion. Make God your treasure. Pursue God more so than anything or anyone else in all of the universe. Open God's Word. Worship Him personally. Gather, plug in, and serve. Engage in the kind of life that grows in a relationship with Christ. Delight yourself in the Lord, and then what happens? Then He will give you the desires of your heart. But why will He give you the desires of your heart? Because your desires will become just like His. As you grow in relationship and in oneness with Him, your heart becomes like His heart. Your mind becomes like His mind. Your character becomes ever more so like His character. And your desires become like His desires. And here's what happens. You start doing things, I mean, because you authentically desire to do them, that one year, two years, three years, ten years earlier, you would have thought if somebody did this, they would be nuts. Like... And occasionally you can look back and go, good grief, five years ago, I would have thought that I'm a maniac for doing this. Who would desire to do this? Jesus, in you. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. You will come to sense His will for you. And you'll come to experience His promptings. 
And in those promptings, you'll begin to realize, well, there's the voice of the Lord too. Now listen, He'll never prompt you to do or give you a desire to do something that He tells you not to do in His Word or not to do something that He tells you you need to do in His Word. So the Word is the filter. But I'll give you an example this morning. Yesterday I was thinking about somebody. We have had so much going on around here, and there's this person that I know that I'm supposed to contact. I I need to reach out to her, and another week goes by, and another week goes by, and another week goes by. And at some some point it gets awkward. You know, it's like, now what am I going to do? And so yesterday I thought, you know what, I just need to write her an apology card, and then I got out my cards, and they all say thank you on it. And I thought, (laughs) scratch it out. Can I just scratch it out? That would just be weird, and an email seems too impersonal. So I said this morning to Beth, do we have any cards that I can use? And she's like, yeah, but they're all girly, you know, and and I'm not going there. I'm sorry. It's going to be like blue and red and manly and has a truck on it, or I don't go there. (laughs) So I finish my message. She's here at the first service, and I see her. And you know what the Spirit said? Go talk to her. And I did. That's the voice of the Lord. Okay? That's how He works. That's how He speaks. And look, it could not have been more clear to me what I was supposed to do in that moment if He came and stood next to me, like apparently He did with Samuel, and said, Tom! Go talk to her now. This is your chance. The sea of people has parted like Moses in the Red Sea, and you can make a beeline for her before she leaves. Couldn't have been more clear. All right, but what if you come to God's Word, still don't know the answer? You're looking into your heart, and you're delighting yourself authentically in God, imperfectly, granted. But really, you're pursuing Him. You desire what he desires, but you're still not sure what to do. Okay, then and only then do you do number three. You ask the question of what does wise counsel say? Because the third way that God speaks to us today is through wise counsel. God speaks to his people through his people. It's very simple. And many of you have experienced this. I've experienced this several times. I have a group. I'll get them together. A few good men, if you will, or maybe a few good women. And I ask what they think, and they tell me what they think. I have literally out loud said, that is the Word of God to me. His voice coming out of your mouth to me couldn't be any clearer if he came and stood next to me and said, Tom, this is, you know, this is what you're supposed to do next. But what if you go to God's Word and you don't find an answer? You're delighting yourself in Him and the desires of your heart are conflicting and you come to your counselors and they're like, "Ah, then what do you do? Then and only then do you move to question number four. What do my circumstances say? And here's why that matters, because we serve a sovereign Lord. We do get that as Presbyterians, right? We serve a sovereign Lord who foreordains, as the Westminster Confession says rightly, whatsoever comes to pass. In my life, in your life, and in the lives of absolutely everyone, everywhere, not a molecule outside of His control. And sometimes, as we survey the circumstances of our lives that have been providentially ordained, we realize, oh, this is what He wants me to do. All right, lastly, you go to God's Word, you don't find an answer. You delight yourself in Him, the desires of your heart, not so much. Counselors, eh, we could go either way. You look at your circumstances and you're like, I don't know. All else has failed you, question number five. What does your own good sense say? And here's why I say that. 
because God has made you an intelligent being, and He has given you a lifetime full of providentially ordained lessons and experiences, and when absent, a clearer means of communication. Okay, guess what? He requires you to use that. He's given you your good sense, and sometimes in good sense, you discern what He would have you do. So, bottom line, when you have a king, then you serve the king. Translation, you do what he tells you to do. And here's the deal. You have a king who speaks. Real space, real time, real words to real people like Samuel and like me and like you. What are you doing to hear His voice? What are you doing to learn to recognize Him amidst all the voices of this world? His voice that you might follow Him. And then here's another question. What has He already told you to do? Unlike, and you know it, because every time you come to church, He tells you again. Every time you dare to open your Bible, there it is. You turn on Christian radio, you don't want to listen to that anymore because you get the same message. He's told you, and He's told you, and He's told you, and He's told you to do it. That you're not doing. Because He didn't just come to save you from your sin. He came to save you from yourself. And here's how He does it by stepping up into our lives as the all-wise, sovereign King and saying, know my voice and follow me. So think about those things today, okay? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, our Savior and our King, God, we praise You that You are a God who speaks and who does not stutter. Lord, You speak in real space, in real time, with real words to real people just like us. You speak clearly. You speak coherently. You are the creator of communication and language. My goodness, You have no impediment. Oh God, give us a desire to hear Your voice. And then to listen with the whole of our lives. God, call us today to come to You with our sin and to be honest with You about ourselves, to confess our need for You, that we are fallen and we cannot get up, that we have offended You in ways that we cannot undo. Lord, that we cannot roll back the book of our lives and fish through all of its pages and white out all the things that we'd like for you not to see. For not only did you see them, but you were present for every single one of them. And let us then also hear the voice of our Savior calling us to himself. That we might be made whole and clean, forgiven and given life in him. But let us then as well bow the knee to that Savior. Lord, let us know His voice and follow Him, for He is the Good Shepherd, and we are the sheep. He is the King, and we are the servants, and our King speaks.
In Jesus' name, amen.